Welcome to a bonus edition of Behind the Mic and a celebration of Audiophile Magazine's Golden Voices. I'm Joe Reed. I had the children. They caught on fire. I had to keep them from catching on fire. And also, people did not catch on fire for no reason. Or at least they didn't catch on fire without dying or having horrible burns. So I was imagining a solution to a problem that technically didn't exist. All I could think to do was give them more soggy bologna sandwiches and just keep doing that until they turned 18, until we all just dried up and faded away. You just heard actor and 2023 Golden Voice, Marin Ireland, narrating Nothing to See Here by Kevin Wilson. It's a performance that earned her a 2020 Audie Award for Best Female Narrator. Marin Ireland's remarkable career has spanned the spectrum of storytelling, with her successes in theater, like her one-woman show on the exhale, in television, Did Someone Say Sneaky Pete?, and in film. Her recent turn in the movie Eileen won universal praise at the Sundance Film Festival. But today, we're focusing on her outstanding work as an audiobook narrator and her remarkable ability to breathe life into characters through her voice. Marin Ireland is quite simply one of the best narrators of fiction in the business, with many Earphones Awards to prove it. She's gifted with the versatility to convey a range of characters and the emotional intelligence and skill to reveal the nuances of any story, however complex. Given the breadth and depth of Marin's talent, it's no surprise she discovered acting early in life. But she was not a child who clamored to get on stage, at least not at first. I was so shy as a kid. I just read books all the time, alone in my room. And I went to a very small, progressive Southern California elementary school. And so um, it doesn't exist anymore. But the whole school was involved in um, two plays a year. So everybody was in them in some capacity. So I was like involved in these plays. And then as I got to be in like fifth grade, sixth grade, so I was like 10, 11, I had like speaking parts. And that was when it all sort of changed for me. I was old enough to have like a sense of a character That was like a revelation because I just remember feeling like, oh, I get to disappear inside the story. And then it was a cure for my my everyday stage fright of my life. (laughs) So so I could disappear into it. And that was uh, the whole change of everything. And that was it. I started doing community theater stuff that my friends were in. And that was just all I was doing. And I went to a boarding school for the arts for the last two years of high school in um, Southern California, in Idlewild, California, in the mountains. I went to a, uh, the first year of this theater conservatory at the University of Hartford in Connecticut in a strange turn of events. And that led me to New York because I was suddenly seeing shows in New York all the time. Um, so that's where I am now. But it was uh, once I once I like locked into that, that was it. <laughs> that was all <laughs> I did. That was my whole everything. <laughs> How did you move into audiobooks? That was a lucky moment where the first one I ever did was Jeffrey Deaver has had a book called XO in his series, and he wanted somebody new. And I don't know what he saw me in. He saw me in something, and he told Simon & Schuster that he wanted me to do it. And 
Carol Shapiro was the first producer I ever worked with. I did not know how to do them, but I was really excited because, like I said, books always were my whole life. I loved books so much, and I always wanted to get into it, but I didn't know how. And I remember asking her, you know, like, (laughs) how far should I go with, like, voices? I don't know. And she was like, you know, everybody's kind of different. Just see how you do, and I'll coach you along if it feels weird to me or whatever. And it was just the most fun I ever had. And I would just be like, please let me do all of them you can ever find. So for a long time, I was just doing ones with Simon & Schuster because that was how I kind of got into it. And then somehow, I guess, word got around. I just love it so, so deeply. It's such a privilege for me. When was this? When when did you narrate your first oh audiobook? Just give me an about. Narr- what are we talking yeah. about? Yeah, let me see. 2012. 2012. That was the first. Yeah. And yeah. I wonder what surprised you about it when you were in that booth and suddenly you're faced with the book. Well, something technical that surprised me was that you can't move. (laughs) That was really a challenge for me in the beginning because when I'm acting, my body is just moving. And so I have to really be aware of that and find like a way to stay relaxed, but not, not stiff. So that was a technical thing that surprised me. And the other thing that's going to sound sort of braggy is um, how fast I go. I didn't know that it was a thing, but I I really just drop into the story and I'm just like into it. <laughs> so I just fly through it. That surprised me, I think, too. I thought I'd be much more worried about it. But I, I really just like have such a blast. How do you prepare for narrating? Do you read the book? Do you mark it up? What do you do? You know, in the early days, invariably, a book would come my way irregularly enough that it would always hit at like the worst possible time like when I was in previews for a play or something you know and I'd be like well I can barely squeeze out the hours to do the book and it was always last minute and it would be like I can't read this whole book so I would read as much as I could which would probably be like you know 100 pages or something just to get like a sense of where we were or you know the kind of general area and if there was like maybe an accent I need to brush up on or something So early on, I'd be kind of reading it cold most of the book and just having the time of my life. These days, if I can, I try to do my own read through of it and just like look up some stuff, you know, as it's coming up so that I'm a little more prepared if I if I can. But, you know, I'll mark up a few things. But usually by the time I'm like ready to go, I've kind of got it in my in my brain a little bit. So I do like what I feel I need to. But it's a funny thing. I guess not everybody reads like this, but I think a lot of people, when you're reading a like a regular book just on your own, you do end up hearing voices in your own head. You hear them talk a little bit. And I don't know if everybody does that, but I certainly do when I'm just reading a book on my own. I think it's also part of having done theater for so long that when I'm reading a play, I sort of hear it, you know? So when I get to a new person or whatever, because the way authors lay in information about characters before you even hear them talk usually... Even if it's just the character name gives you a clue as to what they are, what they might sound like to me, at least. So I just sort of open my mouth and it's whatever the voices I'm already hearing in my head, usually, which is usually pretty fun. Sometimes I have to do some brush ups on some really wild accents. Oh, I want to talk about some of those really wild accents. (laughs) And why don't we talk about Sleeping Beauties by Stephen and Owen King. The voices you created with Eve and Tiffany, Jeanette, that was a performance. Thank you. I was watching the clock. 
Reese said. Timed it. 22 minutes for the light to move from the window to there on the floor. You should call Guinness, said Jeanette. Last night I had a dream about eating chocolate cake with Michelle Obama, and she was pissed. That's going to make you fat, Ree. But she was eating the cake, too. Ree honked. Nah, I didn't. Made that up. Actually, I dreamed about this teacher I had. She kept telling me I wasn't in the right classroom, and I kept telling her I was in the right classroom, and she'd say, okay, and then teach some, and tell me I wasn't in the right room, and I'd say, no, I was in the right room, and we went around like that. It was more exasperating than anything. What'd you dream, Jeanette? Uh, Jeanette tried to remember, but she couldn't. Tell me how you found those. I mean, you had this endless reserve of accents in that book. Oh my gosh, it was crazy. The craziest thing about that book, I remember being scenes where it was like six Appalachian male cops in a room and I'd be like, holy cow. Because <laughs> like, the, it can't be too big of a range. They're all living in the same area. They're all men and they're all cops. Like, what am I going to do? And sometimes when there's so many characters and I have to really make make a decision like okay I don't this can't sound so too much like anybody else I'll pick a weird random physical or vocal element like I'll throw them like way up in my nose or like way down I'll, I'll like let my jaw hang real loose or if it, if there's a million characters like that then I might just pick something like that but a lot of times for me it's not arbitrary. It really does come from my sense of the person so that it can stay consistent. Because if I know how Eve feels in my body, like in my brain, in my heart, in my soul, then whatever physically I do to remind myself of her, because that's usually what works for me a lot is like, okay, well, Eve sits right up on the microphone. So then before Eve talks, I kind of get into like the Eve <laughs> posture and then it's consistent over those days that of recording. But usually it's like whatever sort of pops into my head instinctually or maybe into my head as I'm looking at it before I speak it out loud. And there were a few times that I remember saying to them in the booth being like, okay, this might sound crazy, but I'm just going to take a swing because I'm hearing something in my head. So here, here it comes. Get ready and tell me if it's too cuckoo, you know, but it's, it's really because they made those characters so unique. And it's funny because to me, it's like that's how they all sounded to me in my own head because of how they created them. So sometimes I'll have to try to um, lean into that, what I hear more to differentiate, you know, to take it a little bit further than I might if there weren't so many people in a book. Um, I do remember getting to the last two brothers at the very end. <laughs> and it was like, these are the last two characters I got to make. And I remember... You know, we've been doing the book for a zillion hours and I was like, I'm out. Like, I remember looking up and just blank in the booth being like, I think that's it. I can't I don't I can't do these last two people because I completely gone. I'm tapped out of all. I did like, you know, bazillion characters and I was like, that's it. I came to the end. And, you know, there's then there was just something else I felt, you know, I like again. But for me, it comes from like, OK, well, who is this person? And And just running through this real fast in my mind. Who is this person? And then lean into that. It still feels organic and authentic. What about the narrative voice as opposed to the voice of oh, characters? Because yeah. how do you determine that? Because that is yeah. so crucial. It's so interesting. It's a similar thing. I wish there was a more unique, I guess, answer. But And I've had some producers sometimes before I start a book saying like, well, we don't want this to sound like this other book. you know. And I'm like, well, there's no way it would because it's a different writer. To me, it's a similar thing where like, 
part of what I'm doing when I start reading it is listening to the voice that the book speaks to me in. It's almost like if I was reading the book like it's a monologue, which I think is how I read books because of how I read writing. Like I hear the book talking to me. And sometimes before I know who the narrator is, if it's not first person, if it's just like the writer and the author's narrative voice, it can take me a little while for that to click in and like really hear what that is, the humor of it, the timing of it, the sense of humor inside of it, the pacing of it. Some books, like, I read them and I hear them quickly. And some books, like, the Frederick Bachman stuff has such a specific cadence to me in, like, the the sentence structure and the paragraph structure and the length of the sentences and the timing that's written in as if it were a monologue. And so it's just a, it's so satisfying to click into that. But yeah, it's like I have to really listen to the book. You know, you people talk about a writer's voice, right, finding their voice. And that's what it, it, it sounds like to me. It sounds like a, an actual voice. <laughs> I think the hardest thing when it comes to pacing is being brave enough to respect silences, too. Mm, yeah, yeah. And I think that is especially true with a book like the Beartown series, mm-hmm. where that narration, I think, is almost understated, as though you were stepping back a bit, which absolutely served the book in that series. Well, it's also true. It's the, I feel like it's it's the way he writes yeah. because he writes in such a way that there's so much sadness inside of those those books. But because he's not writing from first person in those books a lot of the time, he's writing from the point of view of somebody who has observed it. And it's part of what makes the book so beautiful. But I almost feel like if I sort of leaned forward into it more, I guess, so to speak, like more, more front-footed, then it makes those twists and turns feel almost manipulative because sometimes you get to the end of a paragraph or a chapter and it's like, and then there's a car crash or something. And it's like, if I, if you're leaning into it too hard, it feels unkind to the reader. <laughs> I feel very aware of taking care of the, the listener in that way. He's not trying to, to you know, startle anybody usually in that moment. It feels very measured in that way. Sometimes there are books where they are trying to shock you. And sometimes there are books where I feel like he's really wanting to sort of kind of carry you through it. And that feels like something that that also sort of helps to dictate the pace of it. But it's very musical, his writing. That's part of what I'm listening to in that voice. It feels musical. So like you're saying about the silences, there were some moments when I felt like it's almost like I can feel the rhythm of it and so that you have to kind of let there be the rest to like land it or after sometimes there'd be times after I would say a thing where it's like I feel like I need a breath I can't just change the subject (laughs) too suddenly sometimes the entire community feels like a philosophical experiment if a town falls in the forest but no one hears it does it matter at all To answer that question, you need to walk a few hundred yards down toward the lake. The building you see there doesn't look like much, but it's an ice rink, built by factory workers four generations ago, men who worked six days a week and needed something to look forward to on the seventh. All the love this town could thaw out was passed down and still seems to end up devoted to the game. Ice and boards, red and blue lines, sticks and pucks, and every ounce of determination and power in young bodies hurtling at full speed into the corners in the hunt for those pucks. 
how do you keep the voices straight for each character in novel, especially when it's a series like Bear yeah. Town? And there are so yeah. many voices from teenagers to older people, but we're seeing the <laughs> yeah. teenagers kind of age a bit. Yeah. When I've done series stuff like that, they always sort of, you know, have a sample to play you if you feel you need it. And a lot of times I'll be like, play me just a minute. But weirdly, they become so vivid to me by the end of the books. I see them in my head. And a lot of times I'm almost casting them with people I know or actors I know. So I'm like, oh, that's this person. You know, I can see them. I see the way they look. I see the place. I see the bar. I see the house. I see all of those things. So it's like if I was returning to the re- to the series as a reader, I'm like, oh, there's my friend, you know, Ramona or whatever it is. And you're like, yeah, I know what she sounds like. I remember her. So whenever I, they play it back, I'd always be like, yeah, 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 I remember. And so then it's really fun, though, when somebody gets to grow up a little because I'm like, OK, well, that's what they sounded like as a kid. Now let me imagine what they look like now. You know, <laughs> it's so funny to me when I'm saying it out these things out loud because I'm like, it sounds so cuckoo. But also I'm like, it's how I feel about them if I was just a reader. Anybody who reads like a series of a thing, you're like, oh, I loved those people, you know, like they're they're people by the end of the book. The last one was definitely the longest stretch. Like by the I think I think when we did the second Beartown book, I was like, oh, I know these people. I don't need the reminder clips or anything. (laughs) But by the last one, I also felt the responsibility of concluding the series. So I was like, just let me just make sure, you know, play me those clips. But it's weird. I was like, oh, no, I was right. I remembered them. How is acting with your voice and only your voice different from Mm. having your physicality when you create a character for film or TV or theater? I think for me, I am actually imagining somebody listening. The sort of very sweet version of this is that my sister loves audiobooks and she lives far away. My sister lives in Germany and so she's always listening to my books. So she's always like, record a new book, record a new book. I'm at the end of your all your books. So I actually am picturing her a lot of the time. It's a funny thing. It's like I really, it takes me kind of imagining a person just hearing it and wanting to really be very, very clear and make sure they're they're catching everything. Now that I've been doing it for a while, I've figured out ways to use my body silently, <laughs> which I need to do. It helps me so much when I'm doing especially dialogue stuff. I, I've needed to figure out, you know, what to wear or what not to do with the pillow I'm clutching or whatever so that I can sort of use my arms to really, like, get my meaning across. But I do have to kind of imagine my listener, which is often my sister, which is sweet. Well, the toolbox is smaller. You only have your voice. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, yeah. you have a far greater range of characters that you can play. Exactly. If I get the chance to do something really great, whatever medium it's in, I can't say no to it. I just can't. It's the thing that brings me the most joy. So so the fact that I get to play all the parts and read this beautiful writing, again, it's not about really like an ego of it. It's about the experience of it, the way it feels that the sensation of getting to do a good scene or something is really satisfying and um, nourishing and fulfilling. And so getting to do all of it, I feel spoiled in that way. (laughs) Because a lot of times if you're in a play or a movie and you're like, oh, that part's so cool too. Or like, he's got such a great part or like, I love that scene or whatever. And you get to do all of it. It's amazing. With theater, film, television, they are so collaborative. And you're guided by a director. You're working with other actors. There are editors involved. Who knows what it's going to end up being like in theater, you know, but in television and film, you don't. With audiobooks, you're recording in a booth. Maybe you're working with a director or producer. Maybe you're not. 
but you're doing it all. Can you talk about the difference between doing it alone and Mm -hmm. acting in the company of others? Yeah. The closest thing I experienced was I did do a one-person play at the roundabout a few years back called On the Exhale. And that was in many ways torturous (laughs) because it was so lonely. But even still, in that case, there was the audience every night. So there was something else kind of feeding me. I don't know that anything has like wipes me out like to the degree <laughs> that recording an audiobook does because you're just sort of pouring everything out and then by the end of the day I sort of stagger <laughs> home and like collapse <laughs> I, and that's a big part of it because you know when you're acting with other people or with an audience you know if the circuit is operating well you're being fed by the energy off your other performers and the audience and all of that stuff so you are maybe tired but sometimes you're real adrenalized by the end of it as well and uh definitely the audiobook experience for me it, you know you're leaving it all on the field as they as they say <laughs> i wonder how working in audiobooks has helped with your with your work in theater and film and tv even in the way you use your voice in those other mediums. Yeah, you know, it certainly is something that I'm aware of in a, in a very different way, or in a magnified way, I guess, in terms of what my voice can be and can do. And it's definitely a reminder of that. And, and even just the, the idea of like kind of vocal health, just to be able to sustain the long hours of recording and all of that, like... The times that I've had to do both a book and a play at the same time or something and having to really remind myself of the importance of staying present in my own body and not just kind of leaning into like maybe whatever the emotion wants to be at the detriment of my vocal health <laughs> because I need to keep going. And the sort of primary priority of, of the listener, of the audience. Uh, I do feel very egoless when I'm recording audiobooks and that's that's always a good reminder of any other acting I ever get to do is that the ultimate is the the person who's receiving the story. And audiobooks, maybe just because the relentlessness of it, you can't ever stop talking to think about how you're doing. <laughs> you have to just keep on going. And the fact that it's a huge responsibility. It may be the only way a lot of people experience a book, a particular book that somebody spent years of their life working on, that many people spent years working on. That responsibility, again, Whenever that's reinforcing, removing my own ego from from the work, it's always a positive, always. You know, I interviewed an actor who had moved from theater to television, and she said she was not prepared for how much waiting and sitting around there is when you film a series, which is kind of the opposite of an audio book where every minute in the studio counts. And I'd love you to talk about those differences of, you know, turning it on, turning it off and just totally being there for hours at a time. Yeah. You know, the waiting, it's so hard. It's hard to describe sometimes how exhausting it is because you might be on set, yeah, for, you know, 10 hours and and do a total of, you know, two hours worth of acting and feel completely exhausted at the end of the day. And a lot of that is because since you don't know when they will call you, you have to kind of stay in a state of readiness. You, I find it very hard, and I think many actors do. You can't just kind of, like, let it all 
go and then just maybe take a nap or whatever it is. You know, you might try to rest, but you don't know when they're going to knock on the door. You're in this kind of vigilant state, hypervigilant state. That is really tough to kind of maintain that soft focus, I guess, all day and that vigilance. And it is part of why for me, I love going back and forth between all of these things because maybe on a series, I'll shoot, you know, one day a week. And then if I get to do an audiobook, then I really feel like, oh, wow, I get to play all the parts and I get to tell this whole story. And I get to have this very, very full, emotional, you know, satisfying experience for these days, you know, and experience the whole book in my body and, and really tell this whole story that kind of teach you about a different kind of stamina and, and patience and discovery as an actor. You're such a busy actor. How do you choose what projects to take on as a narrator? What books are you drawn to? You know, I've been so lucky because the only things I think I've really said no to are when I'm just too booked up with everything else. And a lot of times, especially if it's TV, I don't know my schedule far enough in advance and I can't schedule things, you know, in the way that they need to be scheduled. But mostly, you know, the books that have come my way have been just dreamy and usually really thrilling like I you know oh my god I can't believe I get to do this person's book that's so cool you know um that kind of stuff so I'm terrible at saying no in my career (laughs) but the things that really excite me it's always just comes down to good writing especially on this moment where we're in the writer's strike there is no world there are no people no characters nothing without them and for them to make a whole world and and people out of nothing out of thin air it's like uh, just astonishing to me so if the writing is great then it makes my job so easy if the writing is less than great it's bumpier it's harder for me to hear the sentences it's harder for me to hear the voice and hear the characters but I don't feel like that's really happened for me I've, I've been really lucky well, one book that you narrated and is just wonderful, in, in fact, you won Audio Award for Best Female Narrator, is oh, Nothing goodness. to See Here by Kevin Wilson, uh, which is yeah. a book I read first and then listened to your narration of it. And oh, my God, it's so good. Tell me that experience of narrating that book. It had to have been memorable for you. That was uh, completely an out-of-body experience. Like, I did not want it to end. And because it's first person also, I think I read half of that book before before I went in the booth, so I did not know where it was ending. And I, I didn't want to stop playing that person. I didn't want to stop being that person. I, I, I remember I didn't want to leave the studio after. I was just, like, <laughs> hanging out. It was such a a huge emotional experience for me. I felt like I stepped into this person and didn't want to stop. The people all like came right to me. I saw them all. I saw everything in it. And I was so emotional that by the end of it, I just felt like I had this very profound connection to that narrative voice. Look, Bessie called out. And I looked at her only to see her pointing toward the mansion. I turned. Up there, she said. In one of the windows on the second floor, Timothy was watching us. He was, for crying out loud, looking at us through his own little pair of opera glasses, like he was in a grand theater house in London. He was motionless, watching the children, and it unnerved me to such a degree that I finally looked away, just in time to see Bessie flipping Timothy the bird, her face twisted into meanness. Hey, don't get agitated, I shouted, and then immediately felt like a nag, like my anxiety was going to ruin them. 
I had to be cool. I was the cool one. Or at least I'd promised them that I was. Kevin Wilson and I, I reached out to him, actually, because it was such a big experience for me. I, I reached out to him. We became kind of pen pals, so we still kind of keep in touch. It's very, very sweet. And I've just read all of his things, all of his stories and everything, and I just, we became pals because I was like, somehow what you wrote, I locked right into it, and it was a very, a, a real big experience for me. It was meaningful to be recognized in that way for something that was so special. That doesn't always happen, you know. Yeah, I, I was going to ask you if you do reach out to authors when you narrate books, but you did with Kevin, and that was after the book rather than before. Yeah, every so often, every so often, but it's 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 usually pretty rare. I've done so, a sort of a, an interview with Anthony Doerr. I did like a sort of Zoom Q and A thing with him, where we kind of interviewed each other when he when his as part of his like press tour, which was extraordinary. He's the loveliest person, and. I had interactions online with Frederick Bachman and a few other people. And, oh, Jenny Jackson, when I was doing Pineapple Street, she sort of stopped by the studio to listen in when I was recording, which was actually one of the most stressful <laughs> moments. And I was like, oh, gosh, I hope she likes what I'm doing. That was that was kind of that was one of the only times I've had somebody in that space in real time. And I was like, oh, boy. And I was sort of like, I hope it's OK. You know, tell me what you want me to do. So, so I feel really starstruck when I get to meet novelists I have to say I think of novelists as like these wizards <laughs> so I feel I feel very starstruck by them what's the best part of audiobook narration for you oh gosh what's your most favorite what came to mind when I asked that playing parts I never would get to play really you know playing like little kids and and old people and dudes and teenagers and, you know, uh, to play all these parts I would never get to play that are so delightful. And then finally, Marin, what does it mean for you to be named a golden voice by Audiophile Magazine? You know, like I said, my dream job before I ever was in a play would have been reading books. <laughs> so, and it's very profound to me because... Like I said, you know, my sister lives in Germany. My I have family all over the country, and I feel like I'm reading books to them, you know, in my mind, or feeling like, oh, my goodness, you know, novelists, sometimes, like, their friends and family might experience the book from me. And that's a huge, huge, beautiful responsibility and privilege and honor. And so to be recognized for a thing that, is my biggest joy and my childhood made-up dream job is just, feel, I feel like I'm on cloud nine. To get to be recognized for something that you love to do, I, I don't know that there's like a better sensation than that, really, because you feel like it's reaching people. You just feel you're sending your voice out there into the void and to feel like what I'm pouring into it is being received is a really beautiful and very fulfilling sensation. I'm, I'm very grateful. And I think that's a great place to leave it. Marin, thank you so much and many thank congratulations. You. And thank you thank for so you. many hours of fabulous listening. Oh, my goodness. Thank you. It's really special to me. Thanks a lot. That was actor and 2023 Golden Voice, Marin Ireland. You can find reviews for Nothing to See Here, the Bearstown series, pretty much all of Marin's books at audiophilemagazine.com. This has been a bonus edition of Behind the Mic with Audiophile Magazine. I'm Joe Reed. Good listening. <laughs>